Well, welcome to Wednesday Night Community. If we haven't had an opportunity to meet personally, my name is Bob Seal. I'm the executive pastor here at Timberline Church. And one thing, I've been in that role for a year and a half. I've been on staff here for five years, but this has been our church home since we moved here from the Washington, D.C. area 15 years ago. But I've learned this in my year and a half of being executive pastor. It's important, it's an important enough sounding title that people go, oh, Oh, and they pretend like they know what you do, but they really don't, which means pretty much I get to do what I want, which my wife would tell you is not unusual, okay? I've been doing that for a long time. But um, thanks for being here. If uh, you wanted to know a little more about me, I've got three kids. Uh, I've got a 23-year-old son named Trey who's going to start his first big boy job here in a couple months as an accountant with a local uh, accounting firm. Shannon, our middle kid, is 21 at Azusa Pacific University in L.A. And then Riley, our youngest, is 17. She's a senior at the high school right behind us over here, Fort Collins High School. And uh, it's, you know, it's senior year. We're doing lots of senior things uh, this right now. My wife, Rosalind, and I, on October 28th, we will celebrate 28 years of being married. So thank you. That's, it's, for her, that's impressive. Trust me, she's a saint. My friends would tell you that. But um, since it's our youngest daughter's senior year, like I said, we've been doing senior things. We've had seen the senior day at softball. She's a softball player. We just got something in the mail about senior announcements that we send to friends and family announcing that she indeed graduated, which is, which is a great thing. We, um, senior pictures are coming up. Now, I had discovered this. I think selective memory, I'd forgotten what senior pictures mean nowadays. It's different in 2017 than in 1981 when I graduated from high school. See, in 1981, what you did is you just lined up with all the other students in your grade and walked into a classroom. All the guys had forgotten uh, after being reminded for four weeks that it was picture day, so you were wearing a tattered t-shirt, okay, and you were going to hear about it when they opened up the yearbook, and you walked in, they took your form, you sat down, and just as they were about to snap the picture, you just kind of made a funny face like, you know, as they took the picture. Now it's not senior pictures, it's senior portraits, okay? And my wife sent me this picture. She's like, oh, it's Riley's senior portraits today. And I'm, oh, that's nice. Thanks for setting that up. And she sends me this picture from her iPhone right there. Now, that's a little different than walking into a classroom and snapping the photo. Uh, That's good, Chris. So basically, it means multiple locations, multiple outfits, um, multiple different, you know, poses, multiple dollars. <laughs> I told her it's ignorance is bliss on this one, but apparently you get all these pictures back, the, the photographer weeds them out, and then they send you, certain, but you can, you get a certain package, and, but then you can get add-ons, okay, and so there's all these add-ons, should we get more social media pictures, should we get more printed pictures, how many three-by-fives, five-by-sevens, I'm like, it's overwhelming, but with each add-on comes more money, all right, that's one thing I learned, but we're in an add-on culture, aren't we, anybody flown lately? I just flew last week, and I'm looking to try to find the cheapest airfare, and it takes a little bit of rocket science to figure out, like, which fare, like, this airline, you get this free bag. If you carry on, you pay for that, but the luggage you check is free. 
That's why we like Southwest, my wife and I. Two free bags, they keep it simple, but Southwest has got add-ons. For $15, you can make sure that you get a better boarding thing, which is good for people like me who, who like five hours after it's time to check in so that you get a good A group boarding, you're like, oh no. Because if you, it's 24 hours. If you don't log in at 23 hours, 59 minutes, 59 seconds and click the button, you're like in row C, C1. Me, C40. This, this past week traveling. It's not good. Don't ever do that. I'm in the back where the seat doesn't recline for three and a half hours to DC. Um, add-ons, they're just part of our culture. This is my favorite example of add-ons that I've seen in a while. It's a little commercial that's been on TV. Maybe you've seen it. My favorite is the spill insurance on there. You always get that when you're getting your lemonade from a stand from a kid. Tonight, we're going to talk about add-ons, and we even add on to our faith. And we're going to look at a verse which has often been misunderstood or interpreted, misused, but it's a great example of our human tendency to apply add-ons to our faith. The Bible, and the reason this is problematic, that it's especially problematic when we add on to some of our core foundational truths of our faith. The, the big word for this in theological circles would be the doctrines of our faith. And we're going to look at uh, the doctrine of salvation, the core idea of salvation, and how add-ons have been added to that in, in history. People have misinterpreted what that means, what happens during salvation, and why that really diminishes what goes on. And that we'll look at why this human tendency is important for us to recognize. Our verse that we're going to look at tonight that is often misinterpreted or misunderstood is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And here's the verse. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized for every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, like we've been discussing through this whole series, when we pull a verse like this out of the text and we begin to study it in isolation without knowing the context or doing the right background study, the exegesis, we can misinterpret the message and the content, and that can have a big impact on our faith, especially when it comes to these big core ideas and beliefs of our faith, like salvation. I've been reading this book um, written by Eric Weihenmeyer. Anybody ever heard of him? He was the first blind person to summit Mount Everest. And this book is about his kayak journey down the Grand Canyon. Okay, can you imagine that, blind? And it's amazing. I heard him speak about it. But as I've been reading that, let me, let me read some excerpts for you from his book and just show you why sometimes when we read the Bible, like looking at this one verse, it doesn't work very well. Here we go. The trek and summit attempt of Lakpa Ri would take us about three weeks. As guides, we thought we were fairly well organized. There were guides driving our four cars, each assigned to a group of soldiers. Wait a second, I thought you said this was about kayaking the Grand Canyon. So far, no kayaking, no Grand Canyon. I shouted to Skyler, who actually is a Fort 
Collins kid out of here. I shouted to Skylar, Sky, can you snag me that sat phone? Would plan to use it only for emergencies. Well, it's hard to figure out the story or get a, a taste for what's going on by reading an excerpt, a verse, a sentence from the front of the book, the middle of the book, and the back of the book. But that's what we do sometimes with the Bible. We don't read any other book that way. And if I read this book maybe two times, three times through, if you read those excerpts to me, I probably would be able to say, oh yeah, that's the part when this happens. And in the middle, oh yeah, that, that's what happened there. Oh, sky and the sat phone. This is the context of what, that, what is happening there. And it's important for us as Christ followers, if we're serious about our faith, to understand the whole big God story that is in the Bible so that as we read these verses or study them, we understand the context. We understand the big themes, the core doctrines or foundational truths of the Bible so that we don't misunderstand them and we don't misinterpret them to others, especially when it comes to our children. Here in this verse, we're looking primarily at an add-on, if you will, to the idea of salvation. Now, salvation is the moment where we have a change of heart and we renounce our sin, our former way of living, which was to live apart from God. And we turn away from that way of living away from God or trying to be our own gods, and we repent. We do a 180 turn back towards God, towards God's way of living in faith, in Jesus, which transforms our heart and provides the means for us to live this new life through the Holy Spirit. This new relationship with God, this relationship we ultimately were created for, is an eternal binding relationship accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross in his resurrection. And it's at the moment of our repentance, this turning our confession of faith, belief, and trust in Christ, that his righteousness is, the word for it is imputed, that his righteousness becomes our own. And we become, we, we go from broken relationship with God to right standing with God because of what Jesus did and our trust for him. The Bible says it's the moment when we step from death to life, hell to heaven, and it's necessary, as Brent would say, for our human flourishing now, but for all eternity. That's what salvation is. And many people who read this passage, Acts 2.38, have come to the conclusion that Peter is saying to this group of people he's talking to that it's not just faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus, turning towards God. It's actually then be baptized. All right, that baptism is required or necessary for salvation. It's requisite, if you will, for a relationship with Christ. So salvation then becomes, if you, you're thinking, hearing it that way, dependent not just on what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We must now be baptized 
And the actual ceremony of baptism makes the whole thing official. It's a little bit like being at a wedding when you sign the wedding license at the end and everybody signs it and the photographer's taking pictures of it, that the state recognizes the marriage as legal. And that's the way baptism was being, being interpreted, interpreted when you took this one verse without context of the rest of Scripture. But as we know, we've been looking at in this series, that the best interpreter of Scripture is actually Scripture itself. Just recently, I had a friend, I was at a sporting event, and they came up to me, and they started to inquire about Timberline's requirements for baptism. They said, hey, Bob, what's, what's the requirements? So I talked about that a little bit, the baptism class, what we believe about baptism. They're in a situation where faith has taken a back burner for them. That faith for them has kind of been put to the side. They never really found a home church when they moved here. And my friend said to me, well, you know, one of our kids is moving away this year. I'd like for the three of us to get baptized. Would you do that for us? And the reason is I kind of heard her unpack it that she wanted to get, uh, get baptized with her, with her kids was that it wasn't just she wanted to make a landmark statement, a stake in the ground, a profession of her faith that would be a, be a rite of passage, if you will, for her and the girls. What she was really concerned about was that the baptism ceremony would actually make this whole faith thing stick. The real question she was getting at, she wanted assurance that maybe this commitment that they'd made quite some time ago, and because they hadn't been going to church and faith it was on the back burner, she wanted to be assured that God loves them still and that this faith moment the moment of salvation years ago would stick not just for her, but for her kids. And this is not unusual. This is something you run into as you talk to people and their understanding of baptism. And simply put, is it Jesus' work on the cross that brings us to salvation? Or is it Jesus' work on the cross plus an add-on? a baggage fee, and in this case, baptism, to be assured of our salvation. And basically, does my right standing with God now and for all eternity depend on putting my faith in Jesus' work on the cross and the act of baptism, or is it just baptism, or is it just Jesus' work on the cross? And then how can I be assured? Because if I need to be obedient and do the to Jesus' command to be baptized to assure me of my right standing with God. What about all those other commands? What if, I don't, what if I'm not obedient to some of those other things that Jesus talks about? Is my right standing with God put in jeopardy if I don't do those? Valid questions, which bot bottom line boil down to, how can I be assured I'm in this saving life-giving, life-necessity of a relationship with Jesus? How can I be sure? And in this case, Peter's kind of mini-sermon that we take a look at says, repent and be baptized. So this is where it gets tricky for us, and we need to look at the context. 
and we need to look at what Scripture says in regards to salvation. So some context for this. In Acts 2, here's what's happened. This early church, this early group of believers is huddled together and they're waiting. They're waiting for what Jesus said would be a helper was going to come to them. He was going to give them a helper for the mission that he had given them on the side of a mountain to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're waiting, and this day is called the day of Pentecost. It's when God gives the Holy Spirit to this early group of believers, and he gives them the means by which to live out this God life, this right relationship that they were created for. God never asks us to do something that he doesn't provide the means with which us to do. So he provides the Holy Spirit. Well, well, here's what happens. Pentecost, before this moment of the giving of the Holy Spirit, it was a Jewish holiday. There were Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem at this time as a pilgrimage They were devout. They came into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem had swelled with all these pilgrims coming to to worship. And God sends, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And they're filled with the Spirit and they go out into the streets. and, And Peter, he begins to give his first sermon, his first public teaching. And he goes out into the square and he gets their attention. And he gives this, this eloquent description of what had just happened a little bit over a month before to this, this man, Jesus. And that Jesus was the Messiah, the one sent by God to save the, his people, to make them right with God. And that these people, these pilgrims here, that had actually been the Jewish people who had rejected them and were responsible for their death. And it says that this, the, the people listening, two things happened. First is, it says they all heard them in their own language. Okay, there's people from all sorts of places. But as Peter is giving this sermon, they are hearing it as, as if Peter was giving it to them in their own language. So there's a miracle going on. And that's causing a stir because, you know, everybody's looking, go, this is crazy what's going on. This one guy's speaking, but look at all the different, they're part of a miracle. The second thing is it says they were cut to the heart. That they were convicted. They became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the one sent by God to make them right his righteousness given to them. And what they do is they demand from Peter. They're like, what do we need to do? Tell us how we can have this relationship. We believe you. What do we need to do right now? And that's when Peter answers them. And he says, you need to repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I was trying to think, gosh, have I ever had anything remotely that, that felt or was that dramatic? And the closest thing I could think of that happened to me in my life, I was speaking at a Young Life camp. And Young Life is like a youth group for kids without a youth group, high school kids, middle school kids. And I was speaking at a high school camp, so 500 of these high school friends and their leaders are there. And most of these students are unchurched 
or disinterested at best, and some of them are just completely irreligious and maybe ambivalent to things of faith. And I had the opportunity, the privilege to stand up and kind of unpack the life teachings of Jesus and God's love for them. But in this 500, there were about 25 students, Danish students who had come, foreign exchange students. They had two interpreters. The two interpreters spoke very broken, rudimentary English. The rest of the students had had basically English one. You know, I, had, I took German one. I still remember, even years later, some of the dialogues. I had to remember, wo ist Jürgen? Enden Sie? Nein, in Deutschland. <laughs> right? It's, it's stuck in there. But that didn't mean I was conversational in German. And these students could hardly understand a thing I said. And each, after each talk, the first four talks, the interpreters would come and they would say, you speak very fast. And I said, I will try to slow down. So I was trying to slow what I was saying down. Well, this fifth night, it's when we talked about the cross. God's love for us so much that he would sacrifice his son to make us right with God. And after that, at Young Life Camp, that particular message, we give students 15 minutes of space to go outside around their camp on their own to consider how much they are loved with, by God and how they will respond to this message. And so as we got to the moment of silence, because they couldn't understand very much, they were lost, the interpreters were trying to keep up and it wasn't working so well, I made sure I began to speak very slowly, explaining you're going to leave this place in absolute silence. And you're going to go think about the things we've heard and how you want to respond to God's love. Midway through the talk, they're becoming animated during the talk. And the, and the interpreters are, you know, a little bit louder and the kids are really engaged. And I'm thinking, oh good, I must be speaking slower. They're getting it. This is great. But when it came to the moment of silence, it was chaos. All, all the English-speaking people got up and they're trying to be quiet and silent as they go out. But, but my Danish friends, they're, they're chattering. They're animated. They're excited. And they walk straight to me. And I'm wondering, what is going on? I know I spoke very slow as I was explaining this. And this one beautiful high school kid comes up and she, she starts talking to me. And, and I'm looking at her. I'm like, I don't speak Danish, no habla, okay? So, and she, she looks at me and she goes, I understand. And I, in almost a, a kind, but maybe a little dismissive, you know, you got a few words. I'm, I'm like, thank you. And she goes, I understand. And I thank you. And she rattles something off to her interpreter and her interpreter says, no, no, you don't understand. And she grabs, she grabs my face like I'm a little kid, all right? And I'm kind of bending down, and she's pulling me close. I'm like, awkward. <laughs> and she says something to the interpreter, and I'm, I'm looking her in the eyes. And she says, I heard every word you said as if it was in my own language. What must we do to begin this relationship with Jesus 
We don't want time to think about it. Tell me what to do. And all the, I mean, 25 of them are all there and they're just nodding. Like, yeah, tell us what to do. They were demanding right then and there, what must we do to receive Jesus into our life? That's what's happening here. It was an electric. It wasn't some kind of, Peter gives a sermon, oh, repent and be baptized. Like, it is electric charged. People are excited. What do we do? And this is what Peter tells them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying repent. But in this case, faith is assumed. Because to repent, you probably already would have believed before you turned. You wouldn't turn and then believe. You would believe and then you would turn. That would be the, the impetus for your turning towards Jesus. The thing they also recognized was this, and this was a gift. It says they were cut to the heart. They understood their own sin. They understood they had an attitude of the heart which had rejected God's design for their life and his rightful place in it. Where they had sought to live on their own terms, with their own design, with God at best having a minor role, being a minor character in their story. They understood the seriousness of the consequence of this broken relationship. That it was life essential, life giving, that they were created for it. And that apart from God, that life literally would break upon itself. And that there wasn't just a here and now element and consequence to their sin, this wrong being and wrong living. That the consequence was eternal. They had come to understand that and they said, no more, we need to turn back. They had a proper understanding, not just of their own brokenness, but how Jesus, that they needed a savior. That there was no other way. That their, their position was so dire, they needed somebody to come rescue them. And they said, hey, you need to tell us like my little friend did. She, she's like, you must tell us now what we must do. So the answer to the question, do we need anything more than faith, belief in Jesus, in this case baptism, or any other add-on or addition to the work of Jesus on the cross? The answer is simply no. No add-ons needed. The work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient. And this principle, the idea of by faith alone, by trust alone in Jesus, what he did on his cross, his love for us, our own brokenness and sin, it's, it, was the, it was the main rallying cause of what became known as the Reformation. It was called by faith alone, Martin Luther would say sola fide, and this would become the rallying cry for the Reformation and Martin Luther, and it became the, the primary difference between the Lutheran cause and the chief distinction between the Lutheran and Reformed Church and the Catholic Church. 
It was a pivotal point in the understanding of the text and also God and salvation and how man relates to God. And that's what Brent will talk about next week. It's the 500th year anniversary of that. But here are a couple verses because it's not only important to have the context, it's also important to look at what Scripture says about Scripture. Romans 5.8, and if you want to, like, Paul's, like, deepest theological work on God and man and sin and how all that works together, Romans is the book. Romans is a, is a heavy, deep theological book about these themes. But in Romans 5.8, it says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So on the front end of this salvation idea, exchange, relational exchange, it says, hey, you you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change a thing. And Jesus is going to the cross for you and for me. You, don't, you can't do anything to earn it. You don't need to turn your life around. Even if you don't turn your life around, Jesus is going to the cross for you. While we were still turned away, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. No strings attached, no add-ons. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, our human inclination is to attach strings, put add-ons. God doesn't put add-ons on his love for us, but we sometimes add-on or attach strings ourselves. And our human tendency is not only to attach strings and try to earn it, but then, even worse, we try to take credit for it. Verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when you're thinking of these works and obedience, in the Acts 2 passage, baptism, obedience in doing what God calls us to do, it's the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? Salvation. Only by faith in Jesus. And works, obedience, is an outcome, a natural outcome, an overflow in response to the love of God and what he did for us. It's not a cause. It's a response. And that's what we believe here at Timberline. Baptism is a visible, symbolic expression done in love and obedience in in response to God's love for us and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It represents the washing away of our sin, our washing away of our wrong being and our wrongdoing and the fact that we are raised to newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. We turn from that and Jesus' righteousness becomes our own and we're made new. The old is gone, the new has come. And baptism is an expression of that. 
to encourage our faith and encourage the faith of others around us. If you've been here at Timberline long enough, you've, you've seen the videos and you've watched a baptism. And I love those weekends and I get a little choked up, especially as I get older. I don't know if it's having kids or just being older, but I tear up because I'm watching somebody, as the scriptures say, make a proclamation that they have turned, they've accepted Jesus and has stepped from death into life. Not just for now, but for eternity. And it stirs our soul. And we're amazed at the love of God, not just for them, but for us. And we celebrate when somebody sees that and claims that for their own. I love Eugene Peterson's um, paraphrase of these verses in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. Now God has us where he wants us. With all the time in the world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. But that's the problem with sin, the heart issue, is we want to play the major role. I like being in the major role, and I like getting credit for it, by the way. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we'd neither make, we, no, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both, the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Living this God life was created that through Jesus, what he did in his love and our understanding that and our need for a savior that we would be so overwhelmed and through the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and providing the means for us to live this life that the natural outcome and overflow of that would be these works that God has prepared for us. Now, the problem is the human tendency is that we add on. We attach strings. And throughout human history, we see this. It's like the lemonade commercial. Maybe you felt like this. I remember one college friend of mine, he came to Christ through a, through a ministry there on campus, and he came up to me, and I'm like, how's it going? Yeah, I, I was excited to hear about your, your commitment to Christ, and he's like, yeah, well, yeah, the, the guy, you know, that kind of was, in, you know, kind of the person who inspired me to kind of take this journey and led me to faith as soon as I kind of gave my life to Christ, the next thing he told me is I needed to buy $100 worth of books for Bible studies and things. What he was subtly saying, it was like, I thought it was a free gift, and then this guy attaches a string. That's what it felt like him, almost like a bait and switch kind of thing. But this is a human tendency. This guy wasn't the first to do it. We see that the major people who attached strings in the Bible, it was the Pharisees. They were religiously devout, most of them very well-intended God people, the serious religious. But in contrast to two commands that Jesus gave, which was 
The law of the prophets can be summed up in two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He said it's simple. Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the outcome, the overflow of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus makes it simple. Well, these guys take the Old Testament law, with you if you've ever read the book Leviticus, it's just a whole rule of laws and ways to live, and there were plenty of them. I don't know why they added on, but they add on 613 or so laws to what was already in the text. And the problem with this is that the add-ons actually diminish faith. They diminish who God is. They diminish our need for him. The modern day word we would have for what the Pharisees did, we call it legalist or legalism. It's a religion that basically says there's a list of things you do and you don't do to remain in God's good graces. And the goal is basically to be holy by your own effort or will to earn the favor or to make sure the scales that I do enough good things that the bad things don't cancel it out so that I can be assured I'm in right standing with God. Do you see how that's a diminished view of I love you, no strings attached. I loved you before you even turned to me. I created you in my own image. And I bestowed dignity on you to be my heirs, my children, my, my ambassadors, my hands and feet into the world to do my work, my kingdom work. Or you can try to work really hard and will it out on this whole list of rules. One is so much a better way of living. One is such a higher quality of love. And we know which one resonates for it because we want that in our own relationships, don't we? We want to be loved exactly for who we are. We're not some project for someone to fix. We're someone to be loved, and that's what we were created for. And God is the ultimate one who can provide that love. The result of this is important because I have seen, I have a group of friends I meet with semi-regularly. We go up to a cabin, we sit around and talk. And, and this group of friends came out of this legalistic, rule-type based environment. And it's done some pretty significant damage to their life. They've reacted, reacted pretty strongly against it. They're still unpacking some of the damage to their faith that this kind of adding on does. It's an adding on that majors in the minors and minors in the major things. It's things like, well, you, you know, their joke, which is funny, they talk about, hey, don't have sex. It might lead to dancing. <laughs> that... I mean, they joke about it, but they, it was like, hey, you, you weren't allowed to dance. And I was like, any dancing? I didn't come from a background like that. Any dancing, like square dancing? Ooh, you know? They're like, no, yeah, it's no dancing at all. I'm like, the hokey pokey? No, not the hokey pokey. 
And I'm like, how about music? Oh, yeah, rock music. You can't listen to that. No, rock music, okay. Well, what about country music? My daughter would say country music's of the devil anyway, but that's not my position, okay? But what t- and the problem is the Bible's packed full of people dancing and packed full of people singing. And Jesus' first miracle, this gets problematic, was at a wedding where there was lots of dancing and singing that went on for several days where he turned water into wine. It creates confusion, And ultimately what it does, I think it makes us a little schizophrenic. It almost makes us, in terms of our relationship with God, like a middle school kid in a relation, a guy, a middle school guy in a relationship with a middle school girl. Where every little sign or word is misinterpreted or misinterpreted. Oh, he said hi to me. I think we're dating. (laughs) Oh, he didn't picture a, post a picture of me on uh, Snapchat. I don't think we're dating anymore. He looks angry. Are we still dating? I, I, I mean, I remember this girl, Debbie. This is in high school. I'm in ninth grade, and I, we'd been flirting. We're sitting in the library, and, you know, I came from this small school. Now I'm this big, big school, and I'm sitting with her, and we're, we're there in the library, and she takes her hand, and she grabs my hand. You know, and you're a high school guy, and all of a sudden, it's like electricity shoots through you. <laughs> I'm like, I like this. She goes, hey, will you walk me to class? And I'm like, Sure. And now this had been going all, I mean, this had been a long-term kind of thing, you know, for freshmen. It had been probably like at least two days of flirting. And we, we walk along hand in hand, and I, we get right to her class, and she's like, now give me a hug. Okay, I give her a hug, and, and she gives me a big hug. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. And she goes, now kiss me. And I'm like, whoa. So I gave her a kiss, and she goes, okay, I'll meet you here after class. So after, you know, second period, I go back, and she's there waiting for me. She grabs my hand. She, I walk her to her third period class she's, and give her a hug and kiss. I was at least that smart to pick up what was going on. You guys, after six periods of this, I was exhausted. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is happening here? I don't understand. We were flirting, and then we're holding hands, and now we're, and I got to walk you to class every single, you know, and I'm like, what happens if I don't walk her to class? <laughs> Is it over? What happens if I don't want to give her a hug? Is it over? What if I say the wrong thing? It seemed like this relationship was a little bit tenuous at best, a little bit fickle, and a whole lot awkward. And when we do add-ons in our relationship with God, it's almost like this. Our relationship lasted for that day. That was pretty much it. I never spoke to her again. Not really. I did like junior year. Okay, at that point. But... It's, it, when we have these add-ons, it's always, hey, are we okay? We good? Oh, I didn't say hi to you. Maybe we're not good. Or I did really good this week, right? No, I didn't do good this week. So God, are you breaking up with me? And he's saying no. Before you turned, you were all right with me. In fact, I went to the cross for you. It's what we were made for. It's what resonates in our hearts. See, this sola fide, this by faith alone, it's radically relational. See, when I can be like a child with God knowing I've got nothing to offer him. As my friend Foth says, I can be an adult with you. 
See, when I realized I'm loved with no strings attached, I don't need to attach any strings to our friendship. When I know I'm forgiven, I can forgive you. When I'm extended grace and deeply take that into my heart, I can extend grace freely. When I have been served by the Son of God, I can easily serve you. It's kind of like trickle-down grace. When I take what Jesus has done for me in that love and I internalize it at a deep level, it trickles down into every facet of my life and I don't need to add anything on, but my tendency is to earn it. And maybe yours might be too. But Jesus' love is so much bigger than that. If you're a note taker, I know you've been panicked and you're like, when are we going to fill in the blanks? Right now, okay, which means we're close to an end. First is, you cannot win his love and affection. You already have it. While you were still sinners, he died for you and for me. You can't win it. You already have it. Do you know that? I forget it a lot. I get focused on a whole bunch of things and I forget. The problem with sin is not that it hurts you. The problem with sin is that it hurts your relationship with God. Now, this is kind of important. See, a lot of times we think this problem of sin is that it creates a lesser quality of life for me. That's not the problem. If sin really damages the relationship between us and God, and not on God's end of things. My shame, my guilt begins to create a barrier from my end with God because I'm, I feel like I have to earn it. But God's not so fickle as my friend Debbie or myself. He says, this relationship, what, what more could he have done? Add-ons keep us from living our best story. Add-ons diminish God's love. Add-ons diminish God's grace. Add-ons diminish our story because we're always striving and trying to feel like we did something. I love this. Effort is a response to Jesus Christ's love. One of my favorite authors, I think Brent's too, he's referenced him several times. Dallas Willard writes in a book called The Divine Conspiracy, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. That we... This attitude of earning we need to get rid of, but God's love needs to inspire us towards effort. And the last one is this. If you, some of you are old enough to remember the show Hill Street Blues. And the, the sergeant before the police would go out on duty would be, say, let's be careful out there. I think Jesus says to us, let's be dangerous out there. Listen to Willard's quote. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, 
practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. We're called not just to go to church, to be Christians. We are called to be deeply aware in receiving the love, the grace, the unconditional love of God in our life so that we become people who bring the, the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. That's something worth living for, isn't it? Bob, what do you do? I'm a pastor. That's a, that's, that sounds noble, depending who you are. Bob, what do you do? Oh, I bring the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. That's something li worth living for. Not only that, that's what you and I were created for. And nothing less. And add on steel the vision and the potential that God made us for. Give you a moment to reflect. We're going to have communion in a second. On your bulletin are three what I call option packages. If you've bought a new car, you know that they offer you option packages. They're not add-ons, they're a little different. When we got our Impreza, we got a winter weather option package. It came with heated mirrors. It came with the, the heated front windshield and the back windshield, but the best thing, the heated seats. Oh, and some of you are nodding with a smile. I was giggly the first time. It was like zero degrees outside. I got in and I was like, and you feel that warmth coming up. I'm like, oh, yeah. Winter weather package. <laughs> and soon we're going to end our times together in Wednesday night community. And this is simply maybe a suggestion of ways you can respond to God's love for you. They're not add-ons. They're not ways for us to earn God's favor their option packages us for us to grow deeper in this relationship with Jesus. And their options that maybe reconnect us with the fact that you and I were made to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. So pick any of the three or maybe just one out of some of them. Just some suggestions. Let's try it, see what happens. If you want to, email me, tell, it, tell me how it's going. But bow your heads, close your eyes. If you've never received this no strings attached love of Jesus on your life, if you haven't received his love as expressed on the cross, and begun a relationship with him, stepped from death to life, maybe this is a moment where you want to do that. For some of us, maybe we've just been going through the motions, focused on add-ons or focused on just surviving life or just doing, 
And somewhere along the life in our church going, in our church doing, we've forgotten that we're beloved. We've forgotten what Jesus did for us. We've forgotten how deeply he loves us and what he created for us for. And maybe we just need to get back in touch with that. Maybe some of us have been hurt by add-ons, legalism. And there's some things we need to unpack. I don't know what it is, but as we go to communion, take the bread, a representation of Christ's body, and the wine, these elements, and remember that Christ died for you. Not before you had it together, turned it around, but before you ever made a move towards him, he made a move towards you. Receive his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his delight, his pleasure in you. And when you're ready, take the elements on your own, individually at your time, and then join Cameron as we sing one last song. May we be men and women consumed by the extravagant love of Jesus Christ. May we drink of it deeply so that it trickles down into our relationships, our living, that we might be men and women who live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. It's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen.